You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry. And before we jump into this week's interview, I wanted to remind you about Recognize, which is our design anthology featuring essays and commentary from indigenous people and people of color. Now, the theme for this year is fresh, and the deadline for submissions is April the 30th. For more details, including how to submit your essay, visit recognize.design. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with biology-inspired storyteller and designer, Billy Allman. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Billy Allman, and I am a biology-inspired storyteller and designer. So I look at organisms in nature. I get an understanding of how they innovate, how they have been innovative. And I look for opportunities to apply that to challenges at the human scale. Wow. Now, I regret to say, I first heard about you last year at uh, the Black and Design Conference that goes on at Harvard Graduate School of Design. You were on this panel with, actually with two other people who've been on the show, Ari Malenciano and Jerome Harris. Yeah, so I know that the panel was about like equity and justice in technology and media. I remember you gave this example about a slime mold that I thought, I was sitting in the back like, wow, that is really dope. How had you heard about the event before you spoke there? I've been trying to go to the event. I've been trying to attend the event since the first conference. And my wife actually told me about an opportunity when they started looking for speakers for the last conference. So she actually reached out to them and said, hey, you might want to check out this guy named Billy Allman. He might be good for your conference. And then they reached out to me with an inquiry about participating. Nice. Yeah, I, I mentioned before we started recording how your wife had, she reached out to me too, like years and years ago about starting a podcast. So that's dope that she's been like proactive and helping out like that. Man, she's the most self-actualized person I've ever met. <laughs> it does wonders for my career. <laughs> <laughs> so I read where you refer to yourself as a biomimicry advocate and practitioner. So of course I have to ask, I feel like you probably get asked this on every podcast, but What is biomimicry and how do you use it in your life? So biomimicry comes from this term called biomimesis, which translates to to imitate life. And essentially, it's the idea of turning to nature for inspiration on how to solve problems. If you think about 
the world in which we live in, every single organism on this planet, whether it be human or bacteria or mammals, all of us have to deal with the same conditions, uh, sunlight, cyclical processes, ebbs and flows in, in resources, competition, environmental factors that play into how we live our lives. And so when you think about the fact that we all experience these things, and when you think about the fact that a lot of these organisms have been around longer than we have, you start to see that there's all of these existing methods and strategies for solving problems that exist in the natural world. And so what biomimicry does is we study these organisms and then we find kind of the underlying tactic or, or strategy or function that's at play at, at how these organisms are solving their problems. And then we apply that to parallel problems that humans face. To give you an example, Velcro is an example of the biomimetic process at play. The designer of Velcro, he was a Swiss gentleman who would take his dog for walks, right? And every time that he would come home, he would find these little spherical seeds attached to the fur of his dog. So he took these seeds under his microscope and saw that there was these curly little hooks on the end of, of each strand of, of the seed. And he realized that this is a great way that this seed attaches to animals, these curly little hooks. And that became the inspiration for Velcro. So if you think about how Velcro looks when you look at it up close, it's all of these little strands and, and curly strings on one side with furish counterpart on the other. So mm -hmm. Velcro came from the strategy of this seed, which is called a burr seed, to attach to animals in order to have the animals carry the seeds to locations where they might potentially grow. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've heard I've heard something about that with Velcro and how now there's I guess there's different types of Velcro now where the I guess the matting isn't as plush or the hooks aren't as deep, but it is still based off of that same premise of, of what you've seen in nature. You're not able to kind of recreate that in like an industrial setting. Exactly. So given that example, like I, I feel like that's something we probably as kids, just like running around in fields and stuff have like kind of instinctively picked up, you know, you run around and you've got grass and all kind of stuff stuck to your pants and your shirt and your hair or anything like that. When did you sort of first learn about biomimicry? Like when did you first know this was something that you were into? I actually came across biomimicry as a result of Hurricane Katrina. And by that, I mean, after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, I was an architecture student at Howard University at the time. And after the storm hit and after the man-made disaster that followed, there was a lot of students, obviously not only at Howard, but around the world, but at Howard, there were a lot of students who wanted to do something. Just how can we help? About 500 students from Howard University drove down to New Orleans and to the Gulf Coast to just find ways to volunteer to help during our spring break. And seeing what took place up close had like the most transformative experience. It was the most transformative experience I've ever had. Just witnessing you know, people who look like you, people who look like me in the conditions that, that that disaster left that community. And so as an architecture student, I was just curious, like, how do we avoid this from happening? How do we create spaces and communities where this event is not taking place? And especially knowing that climate change is not going away, 
that, you know, especially coastal cities and people uh, in low income neighborhoods are going to be the most affected and are the most affected by climate change. How do we prevent these kinds of things from happening again? And in, in trying to find answers to that question, I came across this book called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, which was written by a woman named Janine Benyus. And after I read that, like everything for me changed. It became my my design philosophy. Nice. So once you learned, well, hold on, actually, let me switch gears here a little bit, because you mentioned climate change. And here in Atlanta, we have a museum of design here. And 2020, the theme that they have for this year is as the year of climate and change. Actually, by the time this episode airs, there will actually be an exhibit there about biomimicry. It's titled Learning from Nature, the Future of Design. It was developed um, in collaboration with the Biomimicry Institute. I'm really interested in checking that out because I, I heard about that right around the same time that I was at Black and Design. And I was like, I need to learn more about this because the examples that you were giving during that panel talk really kind of inspired me to, to think about like, what are ways that designers could possibly use nature for design, for technology, for, you know, creating more equitable futures, which we'll get to, you know, later on in the conversation. But I wanted to, to mention that. So, Let's switch gears here a bit because you talked about Howard University. So I want to go back a little bit further than that. Where did you grow up? I was a military brat growing up. My dad was in the army and my mom worked for the Department of Defense. And so I was born in Germany. I think we moved back to the States when I was, I want to say like one, maybe Mm -hmm. two. Bounced around several states, Texas, lived in Georgia a little bit, lived in Maryland before I went to Howard lived in South Korea and then back to Germany. So just all over the place, which was a, a fun experience, especially, you know, when you get to come across kids who have like friends that they've known since they were like in diapers. And, you know, it's, I have a new best friend every two years. So that was always a, a fun experience growing up. With all of that traveling and like seeing the country, seeing the world, how did that shape you creatively? Oh man. It made everything possible. It told me that there's more options than I think right away. And and it kind of added all of these different flavors to, you know, the the mix of how you can create something new by just introducing a new or a different perspective on what you're trying to do. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. Because it's sort of like that adage you can't be what you don't see. Yeah. So like the fact that you're able to see all of these different experiences, different people, different cultures, et cetera, like that all feeds into, you know, just kind of who you are. Yeah. And and I got to tell you, if, if there was one thing that, that really stuck out to me about the experience of, of all that traveling as a, as a young kid was just the value of exposure. I mean, you know, like you said, you don't know what you don't know. Once you're exposed to something, it, it just reintroduces you to another level of possibilities, right? So I can't emphasize enough how much exposure, even in, in a lot of the work that I'm doing now, how big of a role that plays. When did you kind of first know that design in general was something that you were really interested in? Were you kind of like just prone to it as a kid or, or how did you find out about it? When I was a kid, and these, these are stories my mom would tell me about me being in my room, building contraptions, building booby traps in my room and 
building, <laughs> you know, cities out of construction paper and Legos. And so my mom would always tell me when I was a kid that I was going to be a, either an engineer or, a, or an inventor when I, when I grew up. So just, you know, her telling me that I was like, okay, if that's the name of it, you know, and I just go back to like playing in my room, finding ways to explore my imagination. I think that was really it. And then her kind of just feeding that was a big part of it. I remember when I was a kid, they used to have this, I think it was like a contest called Invent America. Do you remember this? No. What was that? I might be showing my age, but (laughs) 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 When when I was in school in the 80s, Jesus Christ, there was this nationwide competition called Invent America. And it was for like K through eight students to basically like like creative thinking skills, critical thinking skills, et cetera. And you just basically like made stuff. And it was like a nationwide competition. They judged it. I don't know if Invent America is still a thing anymore. I want to say given the state that America is now, not to be political, but like, I don't know if that's still a thing that kids do. Was that at a public school? Yeah, it it was a public school. Yeah. Oh, man. Maybe I was this, in this, this, and this is a public school in rural Alabama. So like, oh man, yeah. So I, I didn't know if this. I figured it was a nationwide thing. I thought it was nationwide. I'm gonna have to look into that. But yeah, you know what's funny when you said when you said invent for America, my mind went to us. Oh. <laughs> what was it? Teach, teach, no, reach hands for, across hands America. Across. Yeah, I was like, wait, you did what? <laughs> I need to see if Invent America is still a thing because it's funny. I think about like the stuff that I did when I was younger in school and how completely unorthodox I think it is right now. Like we had a a critical thinking, not a class really, but they would give us like these critical thinking exercises. Like they'd give us maybe an odd scrap of construction paper or something and everyone gets the same shape of construction paper and you have to basically make something out of it. So like some people would glue it to a piece of paper and draw around it, you know, like to make it like make art around it, or someone would take it and fold it into something or, or things like that. Like, I don't know if kids have that kind of stuff now. You know, what's crazy about that now to do that, you have to pay like $20,000 a semester at college (laughs) to do the exact same thing. (laughs) Take this piece of paper (laughs) I remember one of our projects was we had to take one piece of cardboard and turn it into a chair mm-hmm. and be able to sit in the chair. And, you know, it's basically just a thicker piece of paper. I could have just went to public school in Alabama and checked that <laughs> box. <laughs> so you have this sort of, I guess, childhood curiosity for creating these traps and buildings and everything. So your parents saw that as something that clearly you were into. Is that sort of what influenced you to go into architecture? Yes. When it came time for me to um, start looking at schools and and start thinking about my major, the closest thing at that time that I came across was architecture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, I was looking at like, what is something that has to deal with psychology, has to deal with politics, has to deal with science and art. And when I, you know, this is, you know, 2004, so this is, you know, before like everyone just was Googling stuff before that was a trend. It was like, it was, uh, what was it? Hotmail and, and, you know, look at stuff up on that internet. Mm-hmm. So architecture was the first thing that I came across and, and, you know, understanding, researching about Egyptian architecture and how the architect was treated in society during that time period. 
really kind of romanticized it in a way where I was like, okay, like this feels like it feels like the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so how was your time at Howard? I wouldn't trade my Howard experience for anything. I mean, <laughs> it was the best in so many different ways. One, because like that was my first taste of Wakanda. Mm-hmm. And if you recall from the talk, but you know, I'm just love Black Panther in part because there's, you know, you can see biomimetic elements in the design. It was the first time I remember stepping on campus like it was yesterday, stepping on campus and just seeing beautiful, intelligent people having diverse conversations and they all look like you, right? Just not getting that flavor. Again, having traveled the world and primarily being the minority everywhere I went, it was just such a unique and special experience that, you know, I just, yeah. Was it your choice to go to an HBCU or was that something your parents were were pushing? No, it's interesting. I had actually planned to go to the University of Maryland and then I I got accepted into Howard and I I remember, you know, I, I don't know how not political or spiritual to not get, but this is literally what happened. You know, I was praying about the decision, like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And like, literally, like I heard the clearest, as clear as I'm talking to you, like someone was just telling me, like, go to Howard. And now literally talking to you, I can totally see how just following that voice just turned into the beautiful life that I have now, especially because I got to meet my wife there. I think that's probably the main reason anyone should go to Howard is <laughs> no, <laughs> <I'm> kidding. <laughs> but, you know, so many great blessings came out of that, that it yeah. just, I'll always cherish it. Yeah. We've had several Howard alums here on the show too. I'm sure they would all agree as well. Like it's a great school. Yeah. I'm curious though about this connection between architecture and like what you're doing now. So you, you go through Howard, you're studying architecture, you graduate with your degree And now, you know, this is 10 plus years later, the work that you're doing is in like biology and design. Like it's quite a path to take. Yeah. So coming out of, out of school, I got an opportunity to participate in a competition that, that Disney has called the imaginations competition. And out of that, I got an internship. So myself and four other Howard students, we entered this competition, submitted a design proposal for something we thought Disney should create, uh, something we thought would be a cool Disney experience. And out of that, I got an internship. Mm-hmm. And my first internship was literally, we were given a stack of things that were being worked on in the R&D department. And they said, come up with new experiences for the future based on these cool cutting edge things we're working on. And that was literally my first internship. So long story short, after that, for 10 years after that, I worked at Disney in a lot of different capacities. And my roles and responsibilities kind of changed to more, not just architectural design, but design of experiences and products and and kind of a lot of really kind of forward future thinking. And so when when you're studying these things and when you're looking at the future and all of that, you're very often looking at the past. And and again, for me, the, the natural world was full of all of these am- amazing, innovative strategies. So it, be, it, it naturally became something that I kind of just applied to everything that I, I was working on. The other thing was like my mother growing up, she loved animals. And, you know, my mom is, God rest her soul, my hero. 
And so, you know, she'd always have like animals, stuffed animals on her desk at work. And we, you know, always love to be outdoors. And so that's Mm -hmm. another thing that kind of just really stuck with me over time. And then when I got the chance to kind of dive deeper into biology and kind of studying how all these amazing creatures do things, it just blew my mind and really opened up this whole new avenue of resources for looking at innovation and design. So then later on, you end up going to grad school. Uh, You went to Arizona State to study this kind of further. You studied biomimicry there. Yeah, yeah. I was like, man, as much as I loved Howard, I was like, I'm never doing college again. Like, I'm just, I'm I'm good. And then, you know, over time, I was just kind of thinking like, okay, if I wanted to do, continue my education, it'd either be an MBA or it'd be something else. And then I, I realized that there was an opportunity to get a master's of science degree in biomimicry. And I was like, okay, I have to keep going with this. And that just further, you know, blew my mind and, and, and really kind of just opened up the natural world to me. So what was your time like there studying this now professionally? Like, I would imagine that probably was a big shock in a way, right? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the cool things about the program was I was, I was also I was also participating in an, an additional smaller cohort program where we traveled around the world to six different locations where we were immersed for a week in all these different ecosystems. So we were literally in these amazing environments, Costa Rica, Hawaii, the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, the Colorado Rockies. We're in these environments. We're, you know, we're camping out. We're looking at slug and you know, lichen and, and mushrooms. And, and we're understanding how not only do they solve problems within their context and within the, the kind of operating conditions that they have to thrive within, but we're also seeing how they relate to each other and how there's so much cooperation in the natural world when, you know, most people just think there's, it's all about competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Survival of the fittest. Yeah. So the interesting thing about that to me is how like how out of context that that phrase is is thrown around when that whole idea of survival of the fittest is really not necessarily the strongest organism or animal but the one that's most fit to the conditions to really thrive within that niche it just completely reframes it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes it then more like relational and environmental and not, you know, not necessarily strength-based or, or, you know, some sort of adversarial kind of concept. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it more about, you know, everyone, there's a place where everything has its most optimal self. Yeah. You don't have to be the strongest. Sometimes you need to be the weakest and the smallest because in this environment to be small is to be optimal, right? Mm -hmm. So it's more about context than it is some sense of bravado, for lack of a better word. Yeah. How did Billy Biology come about? Oh, man. So it's funny. It started kind of, I don't want to say as a joke, but so my background wasn't in biology, but I would be around a lot of biologists. And so for me, you know, again, a a brother in in an environment where I'm the only one, when we're hearing our teachers and our professors talk about these big biological complex terms, I would, you know, kind of break it down for myself to understand, but kind of just blurt it out to the class. So basically that's where the poop comes out, right? Like they have all these (laughs) kind of like really, really complex 
terms about stuff and I would just kind of like break it down like that. And so it, it made it that much more digestible for my classmates. So one day we were in British Columbia and I had time to, to talk to my nephew who's, he was 10 at the time. And I, you know, I was just asking him like, so what do you want to do when you, when you grow up? And, you know, his answer was, you know, oh, I'm, I'm still thinking about it, but either, you know, a basketball player or, or a rapper. And, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, you know, as your uncle, I support you if that's really what you want to do. But as a person who had the opportunity to work among the most creative, you know, talented people at Disney and then travel the world and see all these amazing places, that showed me that this is more about me exposing him to the world that I get to have access to than it is about that potentially really being what he wanted to do. What I would start to do is every time that we would travel to these different places, I would shoot a little video of what I was learning and kind of in that vernacular that I use with my classmates of, of kind of understanding these biological principles. And I would just upload it to Facebook so that, you know, he could see it and other people could see it. And I got so much great feedback from not only from him, but also from like other people who saw the videos about how they were sharing it with their kids and and how much it meant for them to see, you know, a person of color talking about science and technology and and design. And so it became a thing where I was like, okay, there's something here and it's resonating with people and there's a need for it. So let me just keep going and it's just kind of blossomed into other opportunities since. And one of those opportunities being a television show. You have a TV yeah. show called Little Giants. Talk about that. Yeah, so so that's crazy. It's crazy how it happened. Uh, a good friend of mine named Bradley Trevor Grieve, who I had the opportunity to work with at Disney, he saw a lot of the videos, and and he and I, we, you know, every now and then we get together, and you know, we'd go and watch bad movies and kind of complain about how bad they were, kind of put our cinephile hats on. He's a wildlife author and just a, a really dope human being. And uh, so he hit me up one day and he's like, hey, so I'm pitching this show to Animal Planet and I think it would be hilarious if you and I were the host of this thing. He's like, so I want to see if you're interested in me throwing your name into the mix. He's like, you know, just want to be honest. It's it's a long shot. We don't know what will happen, but I just want to see if you're interested. And so I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's a long shot, which means it'll never happen. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Tell them all about me. So he hit me up maybe six months later and he's like, hey, so yeah, we're doing this thing, man. The, the show got picked up. Are you still interested? And, you know, I jumped at the opportunity. So the, the show Little Giants is, is myself and Bradley going out into remote places in the world, around the world, and finding tiny little creatures and highlighting some of the amazing adaptations and the amazing abilities, the amazing kind of superpowers of these little creatures and then exploring if we were to scale up this frog to the size of a beetle car, what's, what are those cars called? The VW bug. bugs. Yeah. 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 If we, if we scale this frog up to the size of a, of a bug, a VW bug, how strong would it actually be then? Or how high could it leap? And you get to see us, you get to see that, that transformation. So it's, it's really fun. It was an amazing opportunity and experience. I was going to say, that's also like a huge platform to be able to talk about biomimicry and about your love for biology and everything. That's truly something. The show is still, there's still episodes on and everything, right? Like it's still airing? 
Yeah, so I think six episodes have aired so far. You can find it on Animal Planet Go. I think more is supposed to be rolling out. I can't say the date, but um, I'm sure I think there's more on the way. I know we shot more, so okay. uh, hopefully you guys will get a chance to see that soon. Yeah, I'll make sure that we link to those episodes that you mentioned, link to them in the show notes. That's really something. I mean, to be able to take this love that you have to television that way. I mean, I feel like sort of like what you're saying about exposure television feels like the ultimate exposure mechanism for people when they see like, Oh, you got a show like all the other work that you've done leading up to that, of course is great, but you have a TV show yeah, that people yeah. can watch. Like that's, you know, that means that it really spreads your message far and wide. That's great. Yeah. It was amazing. You know, I consider myself a science communicator and it's one thing to think that you're doing a good job of like briefly communicating a, a scientific or biological process. It's a completely different thing when you're doing it for television. Again, with my background in in storytelling and you know the work that we I did for for Disney, you know, I see myself as a storyteller too, but TV is so it's such a different medium that having the exposure to tell stories in that way was just another really cool thing that I'm I'm hoping to expand on going forward. So I want to kind of, you know, change the topic here a little bit. I want to talk more about biomimicry kind of as it relates to design and creativity, because you mentioned being, you know, a biology inspired storyteller and designer. For those that are are listening that are, you know, kind of interested in these examples that you're mentioning, can you talk about what the benefit is of using biomimicry? Yeah. So if you think about it, there's nothing that's actually wasted in the natural world, the way that humans, the way that our design you know, creates waste. The thing I love about the natural world and and why I love studying biomimicry is like nature is very entrepreneurial, meaning that things that live in nature, their goal is to thrive, grow, you know, develop their community, protect their families while also expending as little energy as possible. And so energy in the natural world is a primary resource, right? So organisms, whether it's a, a vulture eating, you know, the scraps left from another animal hunting it, things are, you know, they're very entrepreneurial. They're, they're very much about how can I be as opportunistic as possible? And because of that, there's no waste, right? Like you have decomposers, you have producers, you, you have this kind of cycle of organisms that find their niche and are also very resource efficient. And so because of that, you have a lot of sustainable strategies that you see in the natural world. So I can give you a couple of examples. There's this one yeah. company called Sharklet, and they they produce, they've invented this kind of film that mimics the texture of shark skin. The reason that they do that is because shark skin is covered in these kind of, uh, these very tiny, sharp, little triangular looking teeth. And these teeth on the surface of, of a shark actually prevent microbes from collecting on the skin and, and you know, the, the shark's getting like bacteria and infections and, and it's antimicrobial. And so this company developed this film that replicates and imitates that pattern and it's an antimicrobial surface. So now you have an invention that doesn't require harsh chemicals for cleaning. Hmm. Interesting. So, and I think that's the the real appeal of biomimicry is there's so many different ways to derive inspiration from nature when you look yeah. at the process because you're you're studying like the functions right so 
you're studying why does this form allow this beetle to fly at this rate and be that aerodynamic, right? But not only just the forms, you're also studying the process of how, how these organisms solve problems. And you're also looking at how, from a systems level, how all of these different organisms might be interacting with each other to develop more efficient and innovative processes. So just to give you another example, one of the things that I'm studying now is how superorganisms, things like ants, colonies of ants or bees or, you know, uh, schools of fish, how these individual, these individual organisms work together as a collective to accomplish a task and how what their strategy and how they approach accomplishing a task can be applied to like a business organization. So there's all of these really, really cool, amazing things that when you break down nature to its kind of its most kind of basic principles, there's design principles at play in the tactics and the strategies that animals use and that their biology use that we can apply as designers to architecture, to engineering, to manufacturing, to sustainability. And with the with the talk that I was giving, even to social challenges, I believe there's potential for that as well. Yeah, we're definitely hearing a lot about sustainability in the design world. I mean, I feel like it's more so from a like a conservation slash climate change kind of angle, but you hear about like plant inspired materials or even I think I was reading something about how they're trying to like change how computer storage is more like DNA storage or something like that. Like, like looking at DNA and seeing how it stores data to see how they could do it for like hard drives or something like that, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, the more that you look at nature from, and, and I'm not saying like from a, like, I'm not getting into the conversation around design versus evolution, not that kind of design, but mm-hmm. when you look at like, what is actually the underlying mechanism that is allowing this organism to accomplish this task? What are the the dynamics at play, right? Like when you break it down to almost like a physics level, you really start to see all of these patterns and connections that just show you like there's some innovation at play, right? Yeah. So how can designers, I would even say probably developers that are listening too, how can they start to use biomimicry and biology in their work? Like how would you tell someone to go about doing that? So there's several different resources that you can tap into. The organization Biomimicry 3.8, it's actually the organization that Janine, the author of the book on biomimicry, she started. And they do a lot of training and classes and, and workshops, no shameless plug or shameless plug. Workshops are a great way to to understand how biomimicry works and, and how I might even be overcomplicating like how approachable it is to get into this. But one of the things that I always recommend is talking to a biologist about a challenge that you have because they have the understanding of, of the biology. And that's one thing that we always advocate for is this idea of having a biologist at the design table because they can serve as kind of a translator of the phenomena that's happening with the organism and how that might actually translate to the challenge that you as a designer are trying to solve. A biologist at the design table. I'm actually going to use that because my mother is a biologist. Nice. (laughs) She's a a biologist. So like I grew up in labs and around all kind of biological 
stuff. Like, that's what's up. <laughs> so, so like when you mentioned that, it's funny because I mean, I went to school for math and I graduated with a math degree and I was like selling tickets at the symphony. Like for a few years after college, I had like no plan at all. Like, what are you doing with your life? My mom would be uh-huh. like, what are you doing? And I ended up, you know, I was always doing design as like a hobby. And then I sort of fell into doing design as a job. And then I started my studio, but I, I kind of always feel like, I mean, I know she's proud of me, but I feel like in the back in her head, she was like, what are you doing? Like, this, this isn't science. This isn't math. This isn't what you went to school for. It would blow her away to let her know that there are like these biological, like, connections to design i'm I'm definitely going to use that you think i'm joking i'm gonna i'm definitely going to use it when i talk to her this week no yeah go for it go for it yeah no that's awesome she should be proud of you because you're looking to expand your horizons as a problem solver which is what we are as designers right mm-hmm. and you're using the the natural world that she exposed you to to do that yeah that's a good upsell and i mean i grew up in the sticks so like all kind of animals and running around in fields and all that stuff. So when yeah. you're mentioning that about like the little birds sticking on things, I'm just thinking of, I'm thinking now of things that I've seen as a kid that would remind me of like applications that people could use now. Like for example, the little roly poly bugs. I'm pretty sure yeah. there's a way someone is using a similar type of technology now for like armor or something. Like exactly. there's no telling like how that stuff is being used, but that's, that's amazing. You mentioned these workshops. You have your own workshop, Beast Lab. Talk to me about that. So there's two components to it. One is more kind of professionally design-oriented for older kids and adults. And then there's a, a second component, which is more younger kid-oriented, that is really around kind of looking at nature through the lens of, of STEM and kind of having a fun exploration of the outdoors through kind of an inventor's perspective. Interesting thing about about STEM, I feel like it's something when I was growing up, it wasn't a big, huge deal. Well, let me take that back. It was a huge deal in that they wanted to make sure that Black people were going into these fields. Like I remember starting college, I started in a dual degree program. I, I got into that program because I had high scores in math and stuff when I was in school. And so I initially wanted to do computer engineering because I wanted to be like Dwayne Wayne. That didn't work out. Like after first semester, I was like, this is not going to work. And I switched over to math. But it's been interesting, I'd say, within the past 10 years, seeing how STEM is represented, I think, particularly in black culture. Mm. I might be stepping on a hot potato here, but no, keep uh, going. Keep going. <laughs> so, like, I, I hear a lot about STEM, but I feel like the focus is more so on the T and the E in STEM. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much the S, definitely not the M. Let me tell you. Nobody, yeah. nobody everybody hates math. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to touch math with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Man, you are not wrong. <laughs> Do you find that like with what you're doing with this sort of STEM education that people are trying to like steer it towards more technical or more engineering disciplines? I think part of that is like if you think about where like our society is right. Like the iPhone is still the sexy mobile device. Like I think, I think that whole like Steve jobs era of, of like introducing the iPhone and programs and apps. I think that with that, you have a better sales pitch Mm -hmm. of for time for technology and engineering than you do 
science and math, right? Yeah. And I think that's part of it. I think, you know, those are things that like you can easily point to and they get the most buzz, they get the the most shine, but all of the stuff that underlies that, like the math behind all of that, the physics of that, you know, the science, like those are the the two, you know, really the two pillars behind the technology and the engineering part, which is kind of ironic about that whole thing. Right. Um, but yeah, I think you're totally right. Like they definitely get a lot more of the shine, but it, it, just taking it back to biomimicry, that's also another reason why I love it because you get the opportunity to go outside and then just completely kind of deconstruct a leaf, mm. right? And you get to see a leaf as this power plant. You know what I mean? It's this chemical, there's all these kind of chemical exchanges and, and dynamics at play. There's structural, you know, integrity. There's fluid dynamics. There's all of these things built into a leaf. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so just kind of taking it back to biomimicry, that's why I love using it as as a platform to talk about STEM, because I think the natural world is such an easy way to contextualize some concepts in science and, and math in a very kind of present way. Yeah, because then you can just tell people, like, just go outside, like, look at the world around you and see how that inspires you. I mentioned recently being in L.A., and one of the things that struck me as interesting was how... <laughs> it was how plants were used as divisions in certain parts of the city. Mm-hmm. So like if you go into like Hancock park or even further North to like Beverly Hills or, or, you know, right around in that area, you'll see a lot of houses that have these sort of like protective hedges and topiary. But then like, if I went downtown, I just saw nothing but like iron gates, like iron yeah. gates, iron bars, on windows. And it's interesting. Cause like you see a gate like that and you think, okay, I need to stay out. Like this is clearly for staying out. Whereas the hedges felt more, I don't know, like a, almost like a privacy screen in a way. It was a really interesting thing. I noticed a lot of interesting kind of architectural stuff in LA, like all the arches and even a lot of the, the older buildings. Although I heard that LA doesn't really have that great of a culture for conserving old buildings which was kind of sad going down Broadway and seeing all the like burnt out marquees and stuff. Like it reminded me of New York. I guess that's why they call it Broadway. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I get that. Like that's one of the things, you know, LA's I think part of it's like cultural, right. Which is a huge part of architecture, right? Like architecture in a lot of ways is this kind of preservation of cultural philosophies and ideas of a certain time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a place like LA where it's by and large, a lot of it's about like, what's the latest and greatest, hottest thing, what's the latest trend and all that kind of stuff. I can see how they're not necessarily is a great affinity for preserving a lot of the history, even though there's a lot of really great history. Uh, I have a friend of mine who has this company called Mojo. And what they do is they they essentially take you on these a tour through throughout LA and kind of tell you the stories in this really kind of compelling way of the history of these places. So you really get like this really immersive flavor for, for the city and it's, it, and it's kind of culture throughout time, but yeah, I'm with you. Like LA is such a, it's such an interesting place. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like it's a good place for what you do? I mean, aside from, 
like I mentioned earlier, the proximity to television studios and execs and stuff, but being around the nature that's in and around the city, is it good for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the great things about living here, and you hear people say this all the time, is like having the opportunity to go to the beach and then like go skiing in the same day is one of those unique things about this place. And so for me, that also means that there's all of these different ecosystems that I get to explore. The weather's awesome, but it's <laughs> such a great place to kind of just understand, like, again, going back to what we were first talking about with niches and kind of this diversity of life that you find here, not only like just in terms of the people that live here, but also the biota, the the natural life of this place. Like that's one of the things I love here. I can go to the aquarium and I can, you know, talk about octopus with my my daughter. And then we can go to Descanso Gardens and get all of these different flavors for different ecosystems of, of our local area. It's it's awesome for for a lot of the stuff that I'm doing. Now, speaking of your daughter, do you find that she kind of wants to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm seeing <laughs> she's, she's got the bug. So it's funny. She's, she'll be, she'll be turning five soon and I'm a comic book nerd and I didn't force this on her, but she took a liking to Spider-Man. So like her whole room is decked out in Spider-Man stuff. It's like her favorite movie and she loves spiders. Mm. Like she, she has no fear of bugs or we were on vacation recently and, and we saw a gecko. I picked the gecko up and I had it in my hand and then I, I gave it to her and she was handling it gently. And she was telling me how to handle it gently. Wow. Um, so I was just like, oh, my baby, <laughs> she's got the bug. Yeah, it was, it was great. Nice. That's nice. What advice would you give to people that are listening that they're inspired by your story? They're hearing about your work. What advice would you give to any designers or techies out there that want to do what you do? I would say this is kind of a big theme and it rooted again. Sorry. So, so for me, it goes back again to exposure, right? The more that you expose yourself to new things, things that maybe even make you uncomfortable to explore, the more resilient, the more versatile you become as a designer, the more innovative you become. So it's, you know, it's going left when, you know, you usually make a right, right? It's like Mm -hmm. simple things like that, like challenge yourself to get out of your comfort zone and learn something new. And so for me, it starts like take a walk outside, take a walk outside. And as a designer, break down when you see a squirrel climbing up a tree, like what is actually happening, right? Or again, like when you see a leaf falling to the ground, like go and Google anthocyanins and understand, you know, how chlorophyll plays a huge role in, in, you know, the cyclical process of trees. Mm -hmm. I think I'm getting too, too out there, but there's, not for There's me. Just, I remember my mom's a biologist. So I'm oh, like, yeah. yep, mm-hmm, I got you. <laughs> you know, there's there's this poetry to the way that life works. And actually, that's a great book, too, The Way That Life Works. It's kind of like a biology 101 kind of book. But just go outside. Start there. That's, yeah. that's the, the first thing. Go outside. Take your curiosity with you. And just look around in your backyard and just try to find some connections that you didn't see before. Just start yeah. there. It's funny. I'm thinking back like now, like my old like days in science classes and stuff. And I used to be obsessed 
with the Krebs cycle. I was obsessed with it. Oh. So for, for people that are listening, the Krebs cycle, it's, it's basically, I mean, to dumb it down very, very dumbly, basically like we breathe in oxygen, like we consume oxygen and then like we exhale carbon dioxide and water and like that is converted into energy, um, like our yeah. cells convert into energy. And uh-huh. it's like, so we can get what we need for energy just by breathing. And I don't know if yeah. that's like the whole concept behind like breatharians or breatharian, whatever those people are that. All they do is breathe to eat eat. or whatever. (laughs) Um, But I used to be obsessed with that in high school because I was into comic books and stuff, too. And I'm like, that's like some mutant power shit. Yeah. like We just breathe in oxygen and get energy from it. Like oxygen is everywhere. Yeah. It's in in full supply. How is this possible? (laughs) So that's that's the thing, right? Like going back to your last question, I want to I want to share with people like, yes, my background is in biomimicry and Yes, I study biology, but I don't know everything about biology. Mm-hmm. And and as a designer, that was one of the things that made biomimicry approachable for me was I didn't have to right away know everything about biology. So every like when you when you brought up that term, I didn't know the term, but I understand the process. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, the fact that like that's a chemical process. You know what I mean? Like there's alchemy at play in the natural world. And our bodies are a part of that alchemy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, with the work you're doing with the television show and Billy Biology and Beast Lab, like it's 2025. What do you want to be working on? Man, uh, there's there's so many different <laughs> things. One thing that I'm working on as a long-term thing is I really want to, I want to do more workshops in different locations. So I'm currently writing a proposal to different aquariums for kind of being a designer in residence, a biomimetic designer in residence and having workshops at aquariums. That's something that I'm, I'm hoping to do, especially getting a chance to go back to the aquarium in Atlanta. I love that place. Yeah. That's a, I remember when they broke ground on that too, I was working downtown at the time and initially they were doing it because honestly they were trying to keep tourism dollars in the city, but they also were competing with Chattanooga because Chattanooga has a really great aquarium. And we wanted to have something that was like a similar draw in the city. But I, I mean, I've been several times since it's open. I mean, for someone that lives in the city, it feels like a hidden retreat. Yeah. Like it's right downtown in the middle of the city. Like, I don't know. It's a really great aquarium. It's a great, it's a great place to just go and just like spend an afternoon. It is, man. It's so magical. Like seeing that whale shark fly over your head in, mm-hmm. the, in the tunnel and, and just that huge wall. I mean, I just, I, I love getting lost. Just kind of just, you know, like you can kind of just fade away in a way, you know what I mean? Just yeah. kind of just staring into the, into the, the aquariums. That's one thing that I'm hoping to do more of. And then, yeah, I would love to do another TV show. There's a couple of now that I, I kind of understand the way that, you know, wildlife filmmaking kind of works from this perspective, I've been working on a couple of different additional show pitches for ways to extend that, that I'm, I'm hoping will be picked up in the next couple of years as I work on them. I'm curious, what, what do you think about the, so there's like these, I don't, I don't know if I would call them up and coming, but there are these sort of, we'll call them aficionados because I don't know necessarily how professional they are, but like there are these nature aficionados on like YouTube and social media. Like 
do you see yourself kind of in the same realm as them or is the work that you're doing kind of on a different level? It depends on which nature fish <laughs> you're talking about. <laughs> I, I was thinking but, of two I was thinking of two people off the top of my head. So the first person I was thinking of was Brother Nature. Uh-huh. And the second person is this guy named I think his name is Coyote Peterson, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw some video where he was getting stung by like a bullet ant, and I was just like, why? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's next level. He's the cool thing about him was he started on YouTube and he wound up actually getting his own show on Animal Planet as well. Oh, okay. So, you know, props to him. I couldn't do what he does. I, I like to tell people my perspective is as, as an African American male coming into the world of, of biology. But my primary lens and my primary approach is that of a, of a designer, mm-hmm. right? So for me, my design philosophy is where nature, science, and design intersect. When I'm communicating biology, the biomimicry background and, and my background as a designer and storyteller is, is what I think is my distinction. Yeah. You know, Brother Nature... Shout out to him and the real Tarzan and and all of those guys who are bringing people and making nature less intimidating. I think that's great that they do that. I think depending on your understanding of some of the more technical and and academic debates around how you interact with with wild animals, mm-hmm. that's that's a, a separate topic. But again, for me, exposing. Latino kids and or Latinx kids and and African American kids to nature in a way that they wouldn't before because of them. Like I'm all for it. Yeah, I don't know about Coyote getting bit by the bullet. <laughs> I'm pass on that one. I've I, I got the chance to be in Costa Rica and see bullet ants up close and nah. Yeah, you're like I'm that, good. I'm good. That's where. I, yeah. So what, what I say when I come across things like that is like I'm not there in my biology yet. Gotcha. Gotcha. I hear you. All right. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So billybiology.com is the website where I have everything and you can also find me primarily on Instagram at billy underscore biology is the handle. And uh, yeah, hit me up and look out for a podcast called Nature Be Wildin'. Nature Be Wildin'. I like that name. That's a good name. That's thank good. you. Man, Billy Allman, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's very clear to me, just based on the conversation we've had and the work that you've done, that you sit at this really interesting intersection of like nature and design, and I guess technology in a way too. Like you kind of sit at this this intersection. And it's something that we need to see, I think, on multiple levels. One, because there's always talk about, you know, it's not enough black people in tech, you know, black people are, mm-hmm. are underrepresented in technology and design. So it's good to see someone doing that. But then also there's all these stereotypes around black people in nature, you know, like black people don't hike, black people right. don't camp. And granted, there's, I'm pretty sure there's probably some, well, I know that there's racial bias in it because there's laws that say we couldn't, you know, back in the day that we couldn't camp out in national parks or things of that nature. So I think some of that is certainly um, an inherited kind of trauma, I guess, in a way. But you're also bucking that stereotype and bucking that trend, too. It's like, I'm a black man in nature, showing you how nature works and how you can use it to, like, have a more sustainable future or to, to use it for greater things. And so, 
I mean, you're a visionary. You really are. I mean, I'm really glad to, to have been able to talk to you and to talk about the work that you're doing. And I'm really excited to see what you do next. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Billy Allman. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Billy and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.